Hi, I'm Renee. Hi, I'm Sam. And And this this is Laboratory Podcast. If it wasn't for science, we will not have what we eat. We will not have clean air to breathe. I think that everything that scientists do improves the quality of life. Welcome to Laboratory Podcast, exploring the human side of science with recorded interviews of emeritus and retired scientists on the evolution and history of scientific research throughout their careers. Welcome back to Lab Oratory Podcast. This week, we are finishing up our episode of Olivia White, part two of our interview that we started last week. And it is now March. Happy March. Happy Women's History Month, everybody. What better way to honor it than by this lovely finale to our interview with Olivia White? She's got some pretty good things to say. I can't wait to get into it. But first, Renee. What are we going to do today? Today, we are headed to Sea Education Association, SEA, down the road of Woodsole Road to go talk to the current students and staff about the podcast and about my experiences with SEA and what led us to doing this project and kind of the steps and turns and tumbles we've taken since starting it to start some communication. This was an experience that evolved from our ocean sciences meeting, talking to some of the folks there. So I'm excited to go talk to these students and hopefully get some insight and grow a little bit more. Yes, it'll be exciting to share and explain what we've been doing and keep getting better at presenting in front of people. But what Renee hasn't mentioned is that part of SEA meant that she got to sail on a tall ship, not once, but twice. Sam calls me a pirate. She is a pirate. She's a science pirate. And we're probably, hopefully, going to upload pictures of her on the... What's the ship's name? The Korth Kramer. Oh, it's so beautiful. (laughs) Anyways... That's where we're heading today, and we're going to jump right back into where we left off with Olivia's interview, and we're going to start with a quick recap with where we were. We left off while she had just started working with the Human Genome Project. During this project, not only was she part of this monumental undertaking, but she also made long-lasting personal and scientific connections, some of which she still keeps in touch with to this day. And auspiciously, as it's Female History Month, Olivia goes on to talk about female role models in science and how proud she was of the scientific community for recognizing that they needed to step up their game to place women in places that they had previously not yet been. It was interesting that when I uh, switched from immunology to genetics, because I did not get the immunologist I wanted, so when I was uh, a studying and finishing my PhD, there were two geneticists. And one of the gentlemen who was my major professor, and uh, he, uh, I got my degree with him, but then he left. So there was only one person who was left uh, sort of as a mentor. And the year I finished my PhD, he was going to go to Texas A&M for his sabbatical. So I graduated in August, and they hired me to teach there in September to fill in while he's gone for his sabbatical. So I started teaching. 
and teaching genetics and general biology. Second year, he decided not to come back and extend another year, so I taught for a second year also. Well, after two years, he got the permanent position at Texas A&M, and he never came back. And I got his position, and I stayed there for 20 years. But while I was there, it was at that time where uh, Watson and Crick, they were talking about that we really need to do human genome project, which means that we need to look that by then we had discovered that all of the genetic information is in the DNA. So is there some way we can take the human DNA and actually map it? So how much, what, what do we have in it in that language? So we, they call it as human genome project. So we can figure out what our, what is the human genome looks like. So they uh, applied and they went to the government and uh, Watson and then they said, you know, we need the money and I'm, I'm forgetting the uh, amount of money as to how many thousands of dollars it's going to cost to do the human genome project. And uh, the Congress voted on it. And I remember at that time, Al Gore was one of the senators. And, and uh, they said, Al Gore, I think, raised the question, OK, we're going to give you so many millions dollars to do the human genome, to map the human genome. There's going to be a lot of legal and ethical and social implications will come out. That if you have this information, are you going to be use it for personal benefit or, or uh, you know you are going to uh, misuse it? So we said we should have some money available in there. That beside doing the human genome project, you need to look at all the ethical, social, legal implications of it. So they call it LC fund, and they designated five to ten ten percent of money that will be just looking at the ethical, social implication. And then people from different universities could apply for that money and look into it and then send that data. So part of the money came to Texas, and I was one of the person that was involved in the LC project, as they call it. And we used to go to regular meetings, and we will try to raise what may be the ethical questions. If I can find out if this is a gene that causes a disease, then can we yank that disease out? And who can yank it out? Those who are rich and who have the money or those who don't have, you know, those kind of issues. So we will come with a lot of different scenarios. So that was part that I was involved in. And you were doing that while you were teaching at Texas? I was teaching at the University of North Texas. That was part of the things. Yeah. And I also remember it was at the same time that we had a meeting and uh, we were meeting in Houston, and uh, they looked into, there were different groups, that, there were like 15 committees, and all of those that were attending were sent into 15 committees. Every committee chair was a male. So there were some women scientists, those senior scientists than I was, because I was just a very young professor at that time. They objected, they said that, I think that they're, is inequity here. We don't see any women as a chair of any of the committee. And uh, says so we need to change that. So of course these guys got together and he said, you're yeah, going to change it. We will put some women as a, to chair different committees. And you know, chairing a committee doesn't mean you need to know everything, but it's you just chairing and you were facilitating the discussion going on. 
So they asked me to chair a committee. I was petrified. I was petrified. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it just so happened that they asked me to uh, the committee, um, the guy who is from the uh, National Science Foundation, what's his name? Francis Collins. Francis Collins. Francis Collins was in my committee, and he sat next to me, and I said, you know, I'm here are these Nobel laureates, the famous professors, and I'm chairing the committee. And he leaned to me. He said, Olivia, all you have to do is you just need to facilitate a discussion. You'll be fine. And I still remember how he mentored me through that process. And uh, you can do that. You don't have to know everything. And uh, so I, I do remember taking part. But I really was very proud of those few senior female faculty members that they saw that there were no female chair mm -hmm that they need to do, make something about that. And so, so they did that. And just for to clarify, this was from Texas that said that, or the whole Genome Project said the, that? The, this was our group uh, in Texas, okay. you know, because we had certain amount of money that was given to Texas, and we are looking at it. But, of course, we can invite the uh, people from all over the country. So, for example, at that time, and I think that Francis Carling at that time was at Michigan. He wasn't at... Uh, NIH at that time, he was in Michigan. So. That's exciting. So. Oh, I love that story. Do you remember any, um, or are you able to share any, um, I don't know, special meetings where something came up? Like, I'm just looking for any kind of, like, oh, we talked about this, and I remember that that was kind of a big debate, or something that came up in a meeting that surprised or shocked you? You know, no, I, I don't even remember any content of that meeting as to what happened because I was still so petrified. I could <laughs> see some of the people who were there, but with the content at that time, <laughs> couldn't remember. <laughs> so, mm. That's fair. Completely yeah. understood. I yeah. feel that way in some of the meetings I go to now, and people yeah. are like, what do you think, Renee? And I'm like, um, I think I should not be in this room right now, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> that imposter syndrome. Oh my God, yeah. completely. You make it. So you mentioned Francis Collins a few times. Have you remained connected with certain people that you've worked with in the lab through the years? Um, well, uh, yes, I have. And especially since you talked about Francis Collins, I did connect, uh, stay in touch with Francis Collins because when he became the head of the NIH, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I'm a member of United Church of Christ, which is one of the very progressive denomination. And we have a science and technology group. And I was part of the science and technology group. And we would meet regularly at different places. And one year, the meeting was in Bethesda, Maryland. And uh, I wrote to Francis Collin, and I told him, and I said that our church group is coming, and we're looking in science technology issues. There any way that I can bring my group over, and you can show us the lab and what's happening? He said, would love to. And he uh, hosted us. We went to NIH, and they treated us with pizza for lunch. We sh saw all of the lab, and, you know, and I still have pictures with Francis and me and my gang all over, you know. So uh, I stayed awesome. in touch with him, yeah. So, and, you know, he's, he still considers me as his good friend. So. Please forgive me. What is NIH? A National Institute of, uh, of, Health. of Health. Yes. It's uh, Beth has the Washington. It's uh, nationally funded. So Lots of folks get money through NIH to be able to do scientific research. Beautiful. Oh, I yes. like that. I have some research to do on yes. that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so many acronyms. It is. Yes.
So shout out to Francis Collins and all the work that the National Institute of Health is doing to help benefit our human society. And speaking of society, Olivia discusses at length what it was like for her as a woman of color in the science community and in the world and how she believes and has studied. In the end, we are all human. When I first started teaching, and I think I told you that there were two female when I came there as a graduate student, one who did not have a PhD and all she got to teach was freshman biology to education major. And the other one is immunologist. She had a PhD and she was let go. So when I got there, I was the first PhD female and a person of color because here I come from India. So, uh, you know, there was no racial. Uh, as a matter of fact, there were uh, all of the scientists were uh, white male. And I can't tell you how many times women will come up to me and say, so good to see you as a female scientist teaching us because maybe there's hope that someday I could be a scientist. And I also remember an anecdote where I had a friend and uh, she said, you know, all my students, she was teaching in a junior high school, that they always think of, that you ask them what is a scientist and they'll always draw a picture of a white male and a white lab coat. That's what a scientist is. So she said, would you mind coming to my class and talk to my students? And I still remember going to some of these uh, junior high class and I would put on my lab coat, (laughs) even though you don't have to have a lab coat to go and visit, uh, and say that, you know, I'm a scientist. Mm -hmm. So they can see that, that you could be a woman and a person of color and still be a scientist. Yeah, and it's amazing. I have a few friends who do that here in Falmouth with some of the schools. And so she would go visit the third graders and the teacher beforehand would be like, oh, the scientist is coming to visit and only use the term of the scientist is visiting on Wednesday. And they would all draw pictures of what the scientist was going to look like and how more and more you're getting folks, you're getting kids draw pictures of women and you're getting kids draw people of color and different ages and scientists who look different. And so when Katie would go into the classroom, kids would be like, I knew it was going to be a girl scientist. Like, look, I knew this. (laughs) So it is really fun to see the fact that I've heard similar anecdotes to that and seeing that kids are now drawing pictures of female scientists and people are now seeing themselves as that because they have role models. Exactly. That's very nice. I have a quick question. Um, uh, In your younger years or any any other, um, I guess, years, have you ever experienced any kind of discrimination against who you are as a scientist? Or, You know, I'm one of the consider myself as a lucky one because I know many a times that I've been asked, you know, as a foreigners, if you had experiences. When I first came, I came and I stayed with one of the faculty members at the university in SMU, the white family. I lived with them. So my experience was always living with white American family. Then I married a white male. So all my in-laws and, uh, now, speaking of discrimination, if you're living in the South, you know, I did experiences, and I do remember going from uh, 
Texas to Louisiana where I used the colored bathroom because if you're a person of color, we had separate water fountain. And yes, I've used the colored bathroom or I have gone in a restaurant where they will not accept people of color. So where I was not served, you know, but those were such few and, and far in between because I always live in academic community. So I really did not have that uh, kind of experience. But uh, uh, at the department, the person who was the chairman of my department, he was, and I always, in my 20 years of teaching, I always wore my sari when I was teaching I, because I wanted to, I wanted to be proud of my nationality that I come from India, so I always wore my sari. Plus, it's much cheaper that that <laughs> to dress an Indian sari <laughs> than to buy new clothes. But um, he always used to say that hasn't she been here long enough in this country to start wearing American clothes? Or uh, you know, he was had never given me any raises, and he was, so that chairman of the department was. Uh, you know, not very friendly. But then I lucked out that after he left, that a new chairman of the department who was an Irishman, he adored me. He was one of, and I will say that, that sometimes we try to say that, you know, all white faculty members were bad, but he was one of the best ones, and he became my good friend. And he knew that I had the lowest salary that anybody else, and we had travel budget that everybody have. $500 you can do for travel. If you spend more than $500 travel, that's it. It comes out of your pocket. Well, you can't go to a national meeting for $500. All the time, I will go to three meetings a year. Sometime I will spend as much as $1,500 or $2,000. He paid all my travel bills from his grant. or his. I never had to. He said, you go where you have to go. So he, because he knew I was making lower salary than everybody else, that he was so supportive. And he said, don't you ever stop wearing your saris. You grace our halls with dignity. <laughs> so, so, you know, there were very good people that who were good mentors and supporters that supported me. That's great so, that those people were around, yes. even though you might have had some folks that weren't as supportive. Yeah. yeah. But it's also beautiful that you stood strong. I mean, you have such a great energy, and I wish I could share it with everyone who's listening but like <laughs> I, I so I mean it's bringing tears to my eyes that you stood strong you were you're sorry you were who you were I think that that's so beautiful yeah. and I just I hope the other women yeah. and people that can't yeah. do that like they feel that strength yeah well one of the thing I always thought of that uh, you know I'm just not a biology professor so I I go there and I'm teaching them biology but I then wanted them to understand that there are people who come from different country, that we are all human. Because that's one of the things that I still to this day find very difficult for people to say that, you know, I am white American. I am superior than you Indian who come from there. And I want everybody to know we are human. We are 99.9% alike when you speak of genetics. And I'll tell you another story that... Uh, I always use this example of that we are 99.9 alike, genetically speaking. We have more in common. The skin color differences is so, so much less than anything else. But my daughter, when she was here, I think she was a grad student. I can't remember. But at uh, PBS have the series um, where they talk about... Uh, 
This I believe. And, uh, and I'll have to give you a context where you can look it up, where it said that you write in uh, well, 500 words, what do you believe in? And it was a contest. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are books published. First, they asked all important people, you know, what do you believe? And people did that. And then they opened it to public. And my daughter wrote a column while she was here at Woods Hole. And... Uh, she won. They got elected, and she, she got like $250 for that. And I still remember, and she told me that she had been accepted and it was going to be published sometime. But I remember a friend of mine calling me. He said, Olivia, you're not going to believe it. I was just driving on a highway, and I had to pull it over because I heard this voice and this girl on the radio saying, my mother is a geneticist, and she says that every human being is 99.9% .9 alive. And so I said, that sounds like Sherry. And he said, I had to listen to that story. And, and she was really talking about how we are alike and how uh, she came out as a lesbian. And is, you know her story was beautiful, so you'll have to Aww. read it. But, uh, but even back then, that she remembered that I had <laughs> talked about the similarity is what it is. 99.9%. We are all human. So while diversity in science is not something that we have magically fixed over the last many years, it is something that scientists are well aware of and are trying to alleviate what can be a fairly homogeneous field as a whole. It's really nice to see this where at Ocean Sciences earlier this month, last month, last month, it is March, um, there is a lot of sessions on diversity in science and what we as researchers and educators can do to help inspire and welcome folks from various backgrounds to this field where anybody truly is a scientist and anyone can and should be able to pursue this line of work if they want to. I really like the story about the expecting a scientist and how children will draw a scientist and it's edging away from man in white lab coat and how now we are being constantly surprised about our expectations of who is in that white lab coat. Yes. If they even wear the white if lab coat. If they even wear one. <laughs> um, so as we start to wrap up Olivia's interview now, she leaves us with a few really well thought out ideas, some on her views of her religion and biology and others being advice for upcoming scientists. When I was teaching, I had several encounters with the parents of my student because they couldn't believe that I was teaching about evolution. He said, how could you believe in evolution and be a good Christian? And, uh, and I said, I don't take my Bible Literally, you know, it's a gradual process. And so, yes, uh, in my teaching thing, that even though that, uh, that I am a person of faith, uh, I do not take Bible literally. And uh, so I believe in the science and that, that I could teach, but I, I had several 
parents or students really have a, a very narrow view of what should be, and especially living in Texas, and back then they were even talking about we should not uh, teach evolution in school, and if we are going to teach evolution, we should also talk about the, uh, the you know, biblical view of how the world was created, and so. Do you think that they should both be taught in the same lesson? Uh, no, no. <laughs> There's no place for uh, religious studies to be in the biology class, no. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us or any any anecdotes or anything off the top of your head? Well, you know, I I really appreciate the opportunity because uh, you know, some of the things that uh, I have taken for granted, people just really don't realize it. So I hope that my sharing my experiences will help others that... Uh, uh, things that uh, don't ever take things for granted because uh, things are not uh, easy as it may be. And if experiences for my life could be helpful to somebody, I think that that will be wonderful. I hope it wasn't boring, but oh I really God, enjoyed it. Olivia, your interview was anything but boring. It was a really big honor to interview you and get to know your story. I'm really grateful for your sharing it with us. Yeah, it was the first interview, I think, that both Sam and I got slightly emotional while talking to Olivia. And I think that this was mainly because of her well-thought-out discussion on diversity, on women in science, the twists and turns she took to get to where she was. It was really inspiring, and she was so animated and thrilled to be talking about her life story. I think the part that definitely got me the most was how she had this champion who was telling her to be who she was and wear what she wanted and just never never let that go don't let the naysayers bring her down because I I mean growing up I've heard a lot of oh you're in this country you should act like it and I have always had a problem with that because I had learned that we are this great American melting pot not homogenized we are like supposed to be celebrated for all of our differences so that's what I believed and just never found it okay for people to say that. Yeah, and her experience with the Human Genome Project was so interesting because she had colleagues that recognized this. And imagining her leading these sessions and giving these presentations and feeling out of her element, I can relate to that all too well. But seeing where that got her and seeing the confidence that that gave her for the future was really wonderful. I think it all wraps up so beautifully too because as a geneticist she kept on saying we are all at our cellular level 99.9% the same. So I think it's so well full circled here in the entirety of who we're talking about, what we're talking about, the scientific world, diversity, and really at the end of the day we are all the same. And studies have shown that. So it's kind of interesting from a scientific versus a human aspect of 
how it all relates to each other and what we put on all of our labels, I guess. Yeah, completely. So thank you, Olivia, again so much for sharing your journey with us. It's been an honor and a privilege. Guess what? We are still a new podcast. Yeah. So any support that you would be willing to give us is much appreciated. You can find us on Facebook at Laboratory Podcast. You can email us at laboratorypodcast at gmail.com. You can check out our Instagram at laboratorypodcast. You can tweet at us, laboratorypod. And our website is laboratory-podcast.com. Please come on by, say hi, or leave us a little review and a rating um, wherever you can. We would certainly appreciate it. Or give us some feedback. We're still growing. We're still learning. And we hope to continue and would love to hear any thoughts you might have. So thanks so much. And I hope you have a beautiful (laughs) scientific day. (laughs) Bye, guys. Bye. Be it through hiring more diverse. I see that. A dog just ran by the window. Not just any dog. Renee's roommate's dog, Ruby. Renee got distracted. Ruby's now pulling at her leash rapidly. She is on fire. She wants whatever's out there. She wants the the black dog that lives on the other side of the tree. She wants the little red-headed girl that lives over on the other side of the tree. (laughs) You get her, Charlie Brown. (laughs) I got so sidetracked. Now Renee is in a fit of giggles. Yeah, Ruby, we see you. (laughs)